It sure is great to be together again as the family of God. Uh, We're going to do part two of a message that I gave part one of seven weeks ago. It was not intended to have this gap in, in time, but the Lord saw fit that I should have, not only should have COVID when I was supposed to give this message, but I couldn't pull myself together even enough to record it and uh, do it that way. So here we are, seven weeks later, I'm recovered, I'm feeling fine, so glad to be here. Uh, when we did this study seven weeks ago, we started with the idea that seems totally foreign to me, that is that some of you like to jump to the end of a book before going back to the beginning of the book and finishing it because knowing the end will help you enjoy the book more. I don't understand that. I've never understood that, and it's all right. After that message, someone shared with me a new twist on this theme. There are times that he will jump to the end of a movie for the same reason, for the same reason. And to protect Wade Steyer's identity, I will not mention his name. Now, as much as I don't do that myself uh, with books and movies, that's exactly what we're doing with this study, with these two messages. The last time we looked at the beginning of the Bible story, today we are going to look at the end. And doing so will help us better understand where the middle of the story is going as we read the Bible. Well, why should we talk about the end now? Why should we talk about heaven Now, well, it's not something to only talk about at funerals. Our view of the end actually should affect how we live, or actually does affect how we live today. Ann Voskamp has said this, unless you intentionally take time to reflect on your end, you can miss what you need to start. It's a very interesting thing. Basically, she's saying if you don't know what the goal is, you're not gonna know what you need to start doing today to get there. So that's why we're doing this study the way we were doing. Our first study was A Tale of Two Gardens, Paradise Lost. We looked at Genesis 1 to 3, where we saw God's creation of the universe and humankind's fall into sin as Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And here we saw God's heart to provide for, to protect, and to ultimately rescue his people from their sin and its consequences. God did not reject Adam and Eve when they sinned after they rejected him. He pursued them to help them. So remember also that these events in the garden, we said were shadows of what was to come, ultimately pointing to Jesus and his place in God's plan to rescue us. I found a, or came across a picture of a shadow, and this is a nice illustration, right? A shadow is not the actual reality. It doesn't, it, it's not the actual thing. It's a reflection of the actual thing. And what you want to do when you see a shadow is try to figure out what it is that that shadow is reflecting. So if you look at it right off, off the bat, uh, what can you say about this shadow? Well, it's, it's a person. I think, right? It's a reflection of a person. It looks like that person might be wearing some glasses, uh, but that's about all you know. So we need some more information to try to figure out who this person is. Well, if we back up a little bit, we get a larger view of the picture. Anybody recognize this? Some of you who have been in our home would recognize this as our kitchen table, 
right? That's the wall at our house. So that tells you that this picture was taken in the house. Uh, so what if I give you more information and say that this person is a person who lives in my home? So it could be either myself or Laurel or my mother. Well, how could you know that it's not me? <laughs> I don't know what everybody is laughing about. Yeah, there's a little bit more going on up here than you would think uh, would happen to me. So this turns out, this was a picture of my mother. We were eating lunch one day. I had just, I think I had just done that first lesson. I looked up and the sun was shining and such. So here was this perfect shadow. So it's a great illustration of what we're talking about. This is a great illustration of what God is doing in the Bible. In Genesis, God introduced the shadows of the promised descendant of Eve who would one day come as our savior our rescuer. And as the story of the Bible progresses, he gives more details as to how to recognize this person and what his rescue plan would be. By the time that Jesus comes on the scene, those who were paying attention to those clues were able to recognize him as the promised savior. So today, we're going to look at a tale of two gardens, paradise made new. We are going to go to the end of the story and use selected passages in Revelation 19 to 22 to revisit the four main themes, the shadows that we looked at in Genesis 3. So as we jump into that, I'd like to just take another moment to pray, ask God's guidance for this, and we're going to jump in. Lord, we thank you for the Bible that you have given us. This is your word you could have chosen to communicate to us in many different ways, but you chose to communicate to us firstly in your son, the Lord Jesus, and then through this written word that we have as the Bible. It is authoritative, it is true, it is trustworthy, it is without error, it is your word to us. It changes us, it works in our lives, it is the one true and unfolding story of your love for your people, and your desire and plan to restore us to yourself in Jesus. I ask that you would help us to see you and your glory more clearly today. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to see the end more clearly so that we can know how to better live in our today as the story continues to unfold. So we ask your spirit to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first shadow that we saw in Genesis was that God pursued closeness. I don't know if you remember that, but in Genesis 3, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Even after they sinned, he was expressing his desire for them to live closely with him. And so I ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, and this will be the first uh, passage that we're going to look at. And we want to see what happens to this pursuit of closeness at the end of the story. We saw God doing it at the beginning of the story. Let's see what it looks like at the end of the story. Revelation 21, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We're going to focus on verse 3. John, the writer of Revelation, says, behold, behold. That's a word, it says, look. It expresses astonishment, wonder, amazement. And look at the emphasis of verse 3. How many different ways in one verse can the writer express that God will now be living permanently with his people? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Four separate times in this one short verse, John reassures us that God's desire is to live with us, to dwell with us, that we will be his people. God is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Not against us, not distant from us, God with us. And so what we see here in this first shadow is that God pursues closeness, just as he did in the garden, but here he makes it permanent. This is forever. God dwells with his people and makes it permanent. We can have no greater hope than that. This greatly surpasses anything that Adam and Eve could have possibly have imagined what God was going to do with the mess they made, and for us as well. It surpasses anything that we can even imagine now, knowing what we have. Living in perfectly, perfect relationship with our Father who loves us and will take care of us forever. Well, what was the second shadow? The second shadow, and these are not necessarily in the order we did them before, but the second shadow we looked at was that God provided covering. If you remember in Genesis 3, God provided animal skin clothing to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. And that replaced their own flimsy attempt to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Well, let's jump back to Revelation 19 and look at verses 7 and 8. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice here that God is referring to us as his people, as his bride. There is no more intimate relationship than that. But let's focus on verse 8, what the bride is wearing. She is wearing fine linen, bright and pure. Linen was a high-quality material that is here described as perfectly clean and spotless. In the Bible, linen symbolizes power, wealth, honor, and success. These, these clothes, this linen clothing, is an even greater honor than the animal skin clothes that God gave in the garden. And notice that this fine clothing is given to her. It was granted her. It was given her 
to wear this, this, this linen clothing. She did not make it, purchase it, or earn it. It is given. And then the clothing is the righteous deeds of the saints. Romans 13, 14, Paul says, we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like taking a jacket off the, the rack and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, we are clothed with the righteous deeds that are the good deeds we can do now because we are God's children by faith in Jesus. He has given us his righteousness to wear and he gives us the power to live that righteousness out through this life. So the clothing we have is the righteous deeds that we have been given because of what Jesus has done for us. The clothes that God provided in the garden to cover Adam and Eve's sin and shame are now made pure and perfect and permanent. Not because of the sacrifice of an innocent animal like in the garden. That was a shadow of what was to come. But because of the sacrifice of the innocent Son of God, Jesus himself. So God pursues closeness and makes it permanent. And here we see God provides covering and makes it permanent. Well, the third thing we looked at was that God pronounced a curse. You may remember in the garden that God promised one day that a descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head. He cursed the serpent for his deception and promised that one day a descendant of Eve, a male descendant of Eve, would one day crush the serpent's head. Well, let's look at Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a lot of curious details in these verses, and we're not going to deal with those at all. We want to focus on verse 10. We see that in these verses, the devil mobilizes the armies of the world to come in opposition to God's people. What that looks like and what that means, we don't know, but he mobilizes the armies of the world to come in opposition to God's people. But God comes down and judges him, and in verse 10, it says, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the description of hell, the description of hell a place, a lake that is burning with a lake of fire and sulfur. Any of you who have been involved in chemistry will know that burning sulfur has a very suffocating and irritating odor. I still remember high school chemistry, learning about burning sulfur and how to, the need to stay away from that. In Matthew 8.12, Jesus says, hell is also a place of darkness, weeping and pain. And in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus tells us why hell exists. He says, it is the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil 
and his angels, his followers. Don't we get uncomfortable talking about hell? To think of anyone suffering for eternity in such an awful place of burning sulfur and darkness and weeping and pain and torment. But in this case, this is good news. This is the devil we're talking about. This is Satan we are talking about. The deceiver, the liar, the accuser, the murderer, the enemy of all that is good. It is good news. It is good news that he is finally put away forever and ever. So here, God's curse on the serpent that he pronounced in Genesis 3, that he pronounced on the serpent, the devil, come to its complete and permanent fulfillment. The source of all evil is now destroyed and tormented forever and ever. And this will come about because of the seed of the woman, as God promised, Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.8, same writer wrote Revelation, says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we see ultimately those works being finally destroyed forever. Just as God said he would those many years ago in the garden. So far we see that God pursues closeness with his people and makes it permanent. God provides covering and makes it permanent. And God pronounces a curse on Satan and makes it permanent. No more to be faced again. Well, the fourth shadow we looked at, we said that God prevented catastrophe. Now you could say, what greater catastrophe than Adam and Eve sinning? Well, remember that God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden in order to prevent the greater catastrophe of them living forever separated from him and with the violence and the pain of the world that resulted from their sin. He did not want them eating of the tree of life and living forever in their sinful state. Remember also that when God cursed the serpent in the garden, he informed Adam and Eve that throughout history, there would be continual, ongoing conflict between good and evil, between those who love and follow God and those who love and follow the evil one. And that remains true today. There are two, and only two, kinds of people in this world. The first are those who live by faith in the Lord Jesus, who died and rose for them. They are the believers, those united with God, the children of God whom God is transforming to be like him. And secondly, there are those who have refused to put their faith in Jesus, choosing rather to live life on their own terms, putting faith in themselves and in the anti-God philosophies and religions of this world. They are the unbelievers, those separated from God. Look, let's look now at Revelation 21, verses 6 to 8, which speaks of those two kinds of people. Revelation 21, verses 6 to 8. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, 
Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When you read verse 8, do you read this verse with its list of sins and see yourself in there? Haven't we all done some or all of these things? But don't get tricked. Don't get tricked here. You should not see yourself here if, if you are a believer in Jesus. We are all sinners by nature, by natural birth. We have all done some or all of these things. And in that respect, we believers are no different and no better than anyone else in the world, except if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have accepted his death on the cross as payment for your sin and shame, if you have accepted the fact of his resurrection from the dead to give you new life, Jesus' blood has cleansed you from your sin and shame. Jesus has covered you, clothed you with his righteousness. This is not you. You are verse 7, the people who have humbled themselves and trusted in Jesus leading to eternal life. Look what verse 7 says. These are those who have conquered, not because of their strength, but because Jesus conquered for them. That God is their God, and they are his children. Faith in Jesus makes all the difference. It's not because one group of people are inherently better than the other. The decision point is what have you done with Jesus? Are you going to believe that he conquered for you, he died for you, he rose for you, or are you going to continue to live life on your own terms? Verse 8 is talking about those who have refused to allow God to be their God, those who have refused to become children of God by faith in Jesus. They have refused to accept God's desire for closeness to him. They have refused to accept the covering for their sin provided in Jesus. And they have persisted in following the ways of the devil in this world. Their eternal destiny, look what it says there in verse 8. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're all destined to die once physically. The second death is this death in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. The same lake where the devil was just thrown. It's eternal torment in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. But it's not because that's what God wants. But it's because God is giving them what they want. God has provided the way for everyone to escape this lake of fire, this eternal catastrophe. And that way is faith in Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. But verse 8 describes those who insist on pridefully living life now on their terms apart from God. So God will give them their desire. You wanted to live life apart from me now, you may continue to do so in an eternity of life apart from me, apart from God and apart from anything that is good in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Which group are you in? Well, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then celebrate in gratitude that God has rescued you from your sin. He's rescued you from the evil of this world to be united with him forever in that place of perfect rest, perfect peace, where everything and everyone works just as they were intended by God to do. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus, for whatever excuse you may give, 
please hear me. Please hear me. You are on the edge of a catastrophe that is far worse than anything that you have ever heard of, experienced, or can imagine. If you die without trusting Jesus as your Savior, you will enter an eternity of separation from God and from all that is good, living forever in sorrow, pain, shame, regret, darkness, tormented in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur forever and ever. God leaves the choice to you, to us, about which group we will be in. So I say, please, please, consider that today, now, is your opportunity to avoid the catastrophe of eternal death and receive the eternal life that God freely offers you in Jesus. So, God pursues closeness. God provides covering. God pronounces a curse. And God prevents catastrophe and makes it permanent. And all of this is for, and only for, those who've put their faith in Jesus. Well, one other thought. Whatever did happen to the tree of life? Remember, it was a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from, and doing so would allow them to live forever. But God did not want them to eat of the tree and live forever in their sinful condition of separation from him. And he did not uproot or destroy the tree. If you remember what he did, he drove them out of the garden and put a guard around, prevented them from getting back to the tree of life. Well, let's look at Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. There it is, the tree of life, the tree of life. But this is not just a return to Eden. Instead of being in an isolated, undeveloped garden, the garden is now in the middle of an exquisitely beautiful, well-developed city. And if you read Revelation 21, it describes some of the beauty and splendor and detail of that city. The throne of God is there, out of which flows a beautiful, crystal clear river, the water of life to satisfy all thirst. And the tree of life is there, extremely fruitful, available to all who live in that city, to satisfy all hunger. I picked this picture of the garden. I just, you look at that and it's just so, so beautiful. Just think about the cool, crystal clear water coming from the throne of God and the tree of life that we can eat from freely. As beautiful as this picture is, it's a dull, grainy, black and white picture compared to what 
the new heavens and the new earth is going to look like. We have no idea the beauty that is facing those of us who put our faith in Jesus and what God has prepared for us. And Jesus has made the way for those who believe in him to once again eat of the tree of life and live forever in the presence of God, healthy, whole, with no curse, no pain, no sorrow, forever and ever, permanent and perfect eternal life. I get goosebumps thinking about it. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get there. I talk to people sometimes, well, I got a lot of things I got to do down here. There ain't nothing left for me to do down here that is better than up there. My only regret are those I leave behind. And not for me, but for them. Because I know, I hope, some of you will be sad <laughs> if I die. That's my only regret. That's my only hesitation about not wanting to be there because what a place it's going to be. And my only regret is those I leave behind. Remember our analogy of reading the first part of the book and then jumping to the last part so you can better understand and enjoy the middle? Well, we are living in the middle of that story now between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. Even more specifically, we are living between Jesus' coming, recorded in the Gospels, and Revelation 22. We're further down the road, but we're still in the middle of the story. It reminds me of a track meet. I don't know if you've ever been to a track meet, but oftentimes the spectators tend to care most about the start and the finish. But it's what happens in the middle that determines the outcome. Uh, in high school, I was in a position to take first place in the District 6 track meet to qualify for the state meet. I started well, but finished in second place because of some poor decisions that I made in running the race in the middle. And I've totally forgotten about that event. It doesn't bother me at all anymore, as, as you can tell. How do these passages help us to run well in the middle? Well, remember our quote from before. Unless you intentionally take time to reflect on your end, you can miss what you need to start. If this is our end, what do we need to start? Maybe there are things you need to start today. Change of perspective, change of attitude, change of life. This affects everything. We should live now with the end in view. We should go to school now with the end in view. We should work now with the end in view. If we are married, we should live with our spouse now with the end in view. If we are parents, we should parent now with the end in view. If we are in the time of our old age, we should live now with the end in view. So I'd like to suggest three things that knowing the two ends of the story can help us with. The first is a challenge. I would challenge you, encourage you to read through the whole Bible. Don't shy away from the parts that are harder to read or harder to understand because they are part of the story that God is weaving from Genesis to Revelation. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story that God is telling. Ask God to reveal more of himself to you through his word as you read. And there's nothing that I would rather do more than sit down and discuss these things with you if you have any questions about what you're reading to see if we can figure out what God is doing at any particular time in history and how you fit into that story. There is help, especially if you're new to this. So the first is a challenge. The second is confidence. We talked about God pursuing closeness and providing a covering. He is doing that even now. He wants us to be with him now and forever. 
and is even now pursuing relationship with us until that day that it is perfect and complete. And He has provided for all that we need for our sin and shame to be covered, past, present, and future. We just need to confess our sins to Him, ask His forgiveness, and He has promised to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to change us into His likeness. We can live in confidence that He will never turn from us, no matter what. The key is not living perfectly. The key is in turning to God constantly in confession and repentance when we sin, trusting in His forgiveness and grace as we pursue obedience. So there's a challenge. We can live in confidence, and there is comfort. We also talked about God pronouncing a curse and preventing catastrophe. We can find comfort in the reality that God will keep His promises. The evil of this world will not last forever. The evil of this world will not have the final say. The evil of this world will one day receive perfect justice. As hard as it is for us to do, we don't need to be stressed about the chaos and ugliness of this present world. God's not stressed. He's not surprised, not perplexed. There is nothing in this entire universe that he is not aware of and in complete control of. As the song says, we can go to sleep because God is awake. We can find our comfort now in him and his promises. I'd like to close our time together a little differently. This is a, the words from Andrew Peterson's song, Is He Worthy? And it's sort of in a call and response type of thing. I'm going to ask the questions, and if you feel that you can agree with the question, you may answer. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark will not stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? And is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Does the Spirit move among us? Does the Father truly love us? And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves? Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Let's pray. Father, I can't even imagine us being able to grasp the full weight of all that is taught in these passages. That you pursue closeness, you provide a covering, you pronounce the curse, you prevent catastrophe, and your desire is to live with us and us with you forever and ever and ever. We so look forward to that day, to live in that beautiful garden, to live with you forever in the garden in the city. And so I pray that you would help us to live now with that end in view, that if that's what you have prepared for us, how should we live today? How should we think today? What should we say today? And I pray that your spirit would apply these things to our lives as you see fit. 
for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.